0: Welcome to the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast. Drop in as we dive deep into the epic moments of high performance from around the world, where we aim to unlock the valuable insights into their vision and the strategies applied in the pursuit of their own version of greatness. We'll discuss the experiences that led them there and what state they were in when they arrived. I'm your host, Paul Price, and this is the Flowcast. Today on The Flowcast, we dive deep into some important topics around flow, high performance sports coaches, organizational leadership, and how well-being is essential for leaders and high performance. We are joined today by Cody Royal. Cody is an author, podcast host, and a football coach. Currently, he serves as the head coach of AFL Team Canada, the men's national program for Australian rules football. More importantly, Cody is a standout voice in the crossover of leadership principles between sports and business. His first book, titled Where Others Won't, proposed that businesses should look at how pro sports teams focus on team dynamics and talent optimization in order to innovate. The book includes in-depth interviews with the likes of Buffalo Sabres head coach Ralph Kruger and draws on many, many amazing lessons from some of the greatest leaders in sport from around the globe. The success of Where Others Won't spawned a one-of-a-kind podcast series of the same name and reached the Apple Top 100 within a week of launch. Cody has attracted an epic lineup including former Colorado Avalanche head coach Tony Granato, Detroit Pistons legend Joe DeMars, New England Patriots executive Michael Lombardi, the AFL legend Paul Roos, and the author of Legacy James Kerr. Not to mention former Netflix, CHRO, Patty McCord, the best-selling authors Adam Grant and Daniel Pink, and I can't recommend highly enough two of my favorite episodes with Whoop creator Will Armad and the legendary Michael Gervais, a high-performance psychologist. If you'd like to learn more about Cody and his work, you can find him at codyroyal.com, on the podcast at Where Others Won't, but I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Cody Royal where he provides some great narrative and insights. And if you'd like to find out more about Inspired Peak Performance, you can find us at inspiredpeakperformance.com, where you can also book in for a free flow and performance consult. I hope you get as much value out of this conversation with Cody as what I did. He dropped some valuable knowledge, some amazing insights, and lots of lessons to take away. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Cody. Cody Royal, how are you,
1: mate? Pricey. Good to see you, good to hear from you.
0: Yeah, absolutely, it's been uh, quite a while since we've connected face-to-face. For about, I think, six years since I left Toronto, so probably around about that, that time frame. But, um, but it's been awesome to follow your journey um, over the last six years and, and see where you are currently and what you're up to.
1: Thanks, mate. And right back at you. It's been fun watching you move home and, and navigate your family life and business and, and coaching and everything that you've been up to. So, yeah, right yeah. back at you, mate.
0: Yeah, it's quite uh, – I was thinking about it um, last night that it's, you know, the, the difference that a short period of time, you know, even though it feels like, you know, six years has flown by, but it's been a significant period. And I think it's been a significant period for both of us in terms of, the journey of where we were at, um, and now where we're currently at, and the sort of work that we're both doing, and how it's sort of uh, sort of coming together a little bit and intertwining a little bit more. So, um, but with that said, let's. Um, I want to hit you with a with a question straight up, and that question is being a Flowcast focus. I want to know what your experience has been like with Flow, and those peak moments of performance you felt your best, you performed your best. It's it's led to amazing outcomes, significant moments in your life. And, and kind of, you can describe to me kind of what kind of led you to that moment or those experiences and how you get there and what it feels like when you're, when you're in that zone, when you're in flow. Yeah, this is a great question
1: and I'm probably going to steal it from my podcast, just so you know, but (laughs) no problem. I would say the one that stands out for me just because I found it later in life when I was a little bit more knowledgeable about all of this kind of stuff was writing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a writer by trade, but I wasn't I'm not trained as a writer. I didn't study journalism or communications or marketing or anything like that. I actually studied business and HR and fell into writing really as a way to just help navigate my thoughts and get some frustration and anger out. But what it ended up providing me with other than a career is probably one of the only other ways that I've felt pure flow. Um, and that's what attracted me to it. So from going from being a blogger to, to writing all day, every day for work, and then also I write books and all these Uh, other types of things.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Other than Aussie rules football, it's the only thing that's even got close to that feeling of just um, the game slowing down. So if you talk to, if you talk to sports people, they all know what it, what it feels like when the game slows down and um, you know, baseball players might, Might describe it like the ball seems bigger, or it it comes at them slower. Aussie rules players, you know, they say I had it on a string, and it just feels like you're in complete control. And that same feeling occurs when you're just in a zone when you're writing, um, where yeah, expertise just matches the the problem that you're trying to solve. And you, you feel like to use that, that Aussie rules analogy, you feel like you have the words on, on a string, right? They, they fit together perfectly. You can just write and write and write. Uh, obviously that like Aussie rules doesn't happen every time. No. <laughs> you, you have those other days where you're like, that, and then they can't go next to each other. or <laughs> like, whatever it is. You're like, this is dumb. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you feel like a complete amateur again but uh, yeah it's really the the one thing that i've found later in life and that's why it stands out so much yeah is it wasn't a passion and it became a passion and it also uh, i can recognize those elements of a flow state within the activity
0: itself yeah no, i love the way you just ex- expressed it and uh, just on that on that struggle part because your know, flow is a four-stage cycle right so there's struggle, there's a release phase, and then you hit flow. And on the back end of that, we've got recovery, which is generally where, as as we know, like everybody experiences some form of flow in different things in different parts of their life. Um, But what we don't realize is that it's such a taxing state to be in on our neurochemistry and our physiology that it requires recovery just like you would if you're an athlete. Performing, you know, you're going to recovery after you after the big game or anything like that. So, I've got two questions for you on it um, before we move on. When you are in that struggle phase, is there anything specifically that you deploy to um, to switch it back over to get through that struggle phase? Do you just deploy some grit and just keep grinding through it, or do you go, you know what, I'm going to step back, take a walk, take a shower? Is there anything that you have found that would potentially allow you to step away and then take the flow cycle um, from struggle into that release phase where you start to ease into it and then then things start to just sort of kick in naturally where you don't even know where that moment of dropping into flow or, or being out of it sort of exists. Yeah, definitely. So the way that
1: I've found to navigate it is, to keep writing so yeah sure you could call that grit for sure um but the what i've taught myself to do is acknowledge that it's not flowing well but to keep writing because what happens when you revisit writing is because you know there's that old saying you know the the same man never walks through the same river and, and it's you know, the man has changed and the river's changed. And it's kind of that idea in that when you revisit writing, you now view it through a new lens and you can start to see the pieces come together differently. And so that's why I'm quite adamant about even when there is struggle and I could be writing about something, like at the moment I'm I'm in the middle of writing my second book. I've been writing professionally for, you know, five years now. Um, I should be good at it but some days it's not there. But then, yeah, once there's kind of this knowledge that once you come back to it, it's going to fit together differently and you're going to have the words at that time. And you just kind of have to acknowledge that, um, uh, it's going to make sense in the future and just be okay right. with that. And so I don't need to craft this sentence perfectly right now. In fact, it can be a complete mishmash, but when the time is right, I'm, I'm going to be able to nail that sentence and it's going to be gangbusters. Yeah. So there's so a little a, bit of deferral to the future and, and that takes some acknowledgement and some self-awareness to go. That's okay.
0: Yeah. A bit of courage in that as well. like to go to trust. There's a lot of trust in that going, trusting that process and move, you know, that saying, you know, just trust the process, um, that, you know, and, and acknowledging, as you said, like some days are just going to be, crap some days it's gonna be hard and you're going to struggle and it's just gonna feel like you're an amateur again um, and I think that's across the board like in any profession like you know as a you know, as a yeah. footballer you probably felt there's days where you just can't kick straight you can't you can't mark the ball can't you know just the, the things just aren't working in your favor so but having that trust that it doesn't mean that you're not good anymore it just means that it's one of those days and you know if from my perspective it means that It means you're about to step into another up to another level almost like having that faith or that framework around the belief that I'm struggling today because I know I'm about to up up level myself and I will put that sentence together in a much better way than what I can today. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of, I kind of use it in that perspective. So, but I love that way you acknowledge that this doesn't need to be perfect today. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so that's really cool. And so then, so when you do experience that, those moments of flow, and you probably feel like you can write for hours on end, and and it sounds to me like you do write for hours on end. Um, at the end of those sessions, where you've where it felt like everything was flowing and stuff like that, what's the feeling at the when you come out of that? Are you exhausted? Are you are you lit up? Are you excited? Like what's the mood that you have? Like what's the vibe and feeling you have? And I guess my question for you is: Are you aware that probably at that point you need to do some form of active recovery to, to, to be able to rejuvenate yourself, to be able to get flow again in the next session or tomorrow. Um, and if you do, you know, um, but knowingly or unknowingly, do you have a a little routine or something you do to, to recover from, from writing? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. The feeling is
1: euphoria. Like you know, yeah, like 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 a game, like at the end of a game where you you have a good game or you, you play a good match or whatever it may be, you, you have that that kind of ecstasy um and, and your blood's rushing and you're like, oh, yes, you know, I've nailed it. And um but to your point, there's also an exa- exhaustion that comes with that, and mm. um. Usually for me, I have good periods of writing right before bed uh, at night. And so, yeah, it's (laughs) it's not active recovery. It's the other way around, actually. I I, I literally write myself (laughs) to sleep. But the flip side of that is when I can't um, put those words down or I don't have an opportunity to have a pen and pencil or a... um, a laptop in front of me if I can't get it out of my head I also can't sleep and so there's this this element of like it needing to physically come out of me mm-hmm. um, you know if I have an idea that I need to extrapolate or something like that um, so yeah I, I, I I've had to learn to deal with that as well in that yeah. I can I can go to sleep but it's not healthy sleep when I'm, I'm thinking about that idea but then if I can get it out and get it down on paper or write it in Google docs or just scribble it down, I go straight to sleep and I sleep the whole night and um, there's that as well. But yeah, long way of answering your question that there is that euphoria phase of it for sure. And then uh, whether uh, I think unknowingly uh, I've probably been going about recovering. uh, Yeah. Post as well, whether that's sleep or whether that is, going for a walk but i've tended to think of walking more so as pre uh you know trying to organize my thoughts pre so yeah. they come out better it's almost like my my preparation
0: yeah that's that's really interesting because um so what you said um forms forms of active recovery so so from from my perspective and what i'm understanding around recovery now is that um i would consider i would teach people that sleep is your best form of active recovery even though we're not technically active we are that sleep is is probably your number one high performance tool for recovery um so but so with you saying that you know if you've got that idea still mulling in your head and you can't sleep you know i love that strategy of just getting up get it out on piece of paper so you've got that peace of mind that it's there it's out of your head and now you can just focus and get that sleep to, for that recovery to happen. But on your, on your last bit there about going for that walk pre, say, writing sessions to organise your thoughts. So um, we can walk ourselves into a, um, a state of transient hypofrontality, which is uh, kind of a somewhat of a micro form of flow. And they generally say that exercise-induced um, hypofrontality takes about if you're walking, we'll take about 25 minutes. So when you're about 25 minutes into a walk, you start to suddenly feel this release. So this is that release phase of, of um, the flow cycle we, we talked about earlier is um, where it's that all of a sudden you start, your pattern recognition starts to kick in and you start linking ideas, which is what I kind of, that's what I'm, um, uh, my perception of what you just said is, is kind of happening, I guess is, you go for a walk to organize your ideas, but through exercise we can induce that sort of prefrontal cortex start to go offline a little bit where we can actually just focus our attention. And it's actually a recommended strategy to go before your flow sessions or a flow experience, um, to, to prepare yourself for it. Ideally. Like just, it's, it's a perfect combination. So, so it's fascinating that you, that you just, uh, that you use it that way. So, Super cool. Yeah. Well, that's why these conversations are so important is because,
1: you know, the reason that, that I said what I said was because most people won't think of it like that, like active recovery. And, and most people even, you know, when, when, when I get asked, which is quite regularly now, whether I meditate, um, the way people traditionally associate it, I don't. I don't sit there with my, you know, my, my, my thumb and my forefinger, you know, in the circle and my legs crossed. I run yeah. and go for a walk, right? But people don't traditionally associate those activities with meditation. They think it has to be this, this one thing. And, and that's why I love what you're doing is, you know, we can have these conversations and start to you know, address some of these things that have kind of become norms that aren't necessarily true or, or have different facets to them that we need to consider as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the language around, or the belief around what is meditation, you know, if you ask many people, it's exactly what you said, you know, that are sitting in a position, silent, eyes closed <laughs> and this thing, but there's, you know, and this is why I love the word mindfulness a lot. Um, because mindfulness is really just about paying, um, paying honor to the, to the present moment really. And just having your focus yeah. sort of on one thing just be able to be, be aware, like the awareness of what's happening, you know, the interception, what's happening inside internally for you. And and also for the external factor as well, but, um, but it is a very important piece. And I think that from a high performance perspective, there's a shift in language that needs to happen because that peak performance conversation generally doesn't include the thought of mindfulness, meditation, gratitude, all these things that actually, prime and rewire our brain to look for the optimism the the positives and train ourselves and 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 prepare ourselves for peak performance which i think is a really important piece that we we need to start um emphasizing a lot more so so yeah so it's a a really valid point so let's uh, we're going to get back into this this stuff because it's super cool and i know both of us geek out on this a lot and, and we were very passionate about this topic of what does peak performance look like? And today, what is the future leader and future coach um, of high performance, high stress environments look like? Um, Mm -hmm. But I want to sort of dive back into your story a bit more because it's super interesting. Um, You know, when we sort of had a pre-chat, I asked you, you know, so how did you get here? Like, how did you get to be um, an author who's about to to release his second book? Um, And, you know, your podcast host, you're the head coach of the uh, national AFL Canadian team. Um, you've been in the elite level um, football for, for quite some time, especially in your junior career. So how did you get to be here from wanting to be purely only an AFL superstar? <laughs> yeah, it's
1: been a non-linear journey, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> no I'm, star I certainly haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I t- told you yesterday, um, grew up in Canberra, just obsessed with sport, and um, that just continued. You know, that's all I all I ever wanted to do was play professionally. I obviously, idolised the Canberra Raiders when I was growing up in in Canberra. There was no such thing as AFL, and then right. we moved moved to Melbourne, and and that just took over, and yeah, you know, kind of reached the, the elite junior levels. I was in the big the Metro squads at 15, 16s and 18s age groups, and then didn't didn't get drafted. So when you get to 18 and everything that you've ever wanted to do, and the only thing you ever wanted to do is kind of taken away from you. Well, not taken away from you, you, you just, you're not good enough. Um, <laughs> you have to start your life. And I have kind of spent the next eighteen years searching for something to replace that. And so, you know, so when, you say, when you say to replace that,
0: like what, what do you mean exactly by replacing that football? Is it like the the dream or the feeling, the experience, you know, what was what do you mean by that? Yeah, the, the the dream, the the
1: you know, the feeling of expertise, definitely. Um, you know, when you're in the top 40, you know, under 18 football players in the state, um, you, you know, you, you're pretty good. And and that comes with a level of expertise that I I couldn't find anything else that I was that good at. And so it was that sense of achievement internally. Um, of course there's ego into that as well, a sense of achievement externally, um, Mm -hmm there's, yeah, the, um, there's a whole range of different things. And, and I, I, I really struggled. I didn't find it in my schooling. I, I didn't find it in the corporate world. Or, you know, you could be good at things, but they're not really meaningful.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, you know, I've chopped and changed careers. Uh, travel was great. But, again, you can only do that for so long.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's not a career. <laughs>
1: um, and so, yeah, I've, I've kind of lived the last 18 years where I'm happy to walk down certain paths and then trust that the right doors open at the right time and,
2: mm. and
1: try to kind of live a little bit intuitively and say, yeah, this is the right thing right now. And then when those circumstances arise, you, know, you have to have the bravery to walk through those doors. Yeah, But that's like career changes, moving, moving to Canada. I didn't know anyone when I got here. It wasn't, you know, wasn't come and visit someone and end up staying. It was literally, I knew zero people, mm-hmm. um, you know, change careers, quit my job on the spot to become a writer, you know, all, all these different things. And it's all chasing this, this thing that was you know, removed from my life at 18. Right. Um, can were you aware of it?
0: Like, were you aware that, that that thing was missing for such a long time, or was it just sort of, you know, through our twenties we consented, we can tend to sort of just sort of go through the motions, thinking that we're finding ourselves or or something like that. You know, were you were you aware of that thing was missing, or was it something that you kind of pushed to the side or did, or ignored or just weren't aware of? I was definitely
1: aware at kind of nineteen twenty. You know there are some times where at senior footy, you know I went and played at Port Melbourne, and I can think of a time where it was training in the middle of the winter and I you know <laughs> we're training with a f l players and I just stopped in the middle of training it stopped, and I was just like, I, like like this is i I don't want to be here, I don't like doing this and right. uh, you know thankfully uh you know David Burke runs over to me and he's like, he's like you know mate." you yeah, know, come on, let's go, like, what's, what's going on here? And actually took the time to, to be like, you know, it's, it's okay, like, let's talk this out. And um, he was great for me and we ended up becoming teammates again at Vermont um, later on as well. So, you know, there was some mentors that kind of stepped up for that and, and recognised that there was something going on that you know, wasn't skill-based or anything like that. It was just, uh, yeah, this kind of search but then, to your point, pricey. You know, through my twenties, I didn't really recognise it. Or, you know, you start to make a bit of money, you're hanging out with your mates, you think everything's great. But when I look back on it, uh, that wasn't a good place.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, we can get to that point where we sort of are uh, cruising along, finding what I would say kind of flow in inauthentic authentic moments or or ways whether it be kind of, you know, we get out having a few drinks and partying, hanging out with the mates and, you know, sort of chasing things that were interesting at the time but really didn't hold much longevity or, or purpose behind it. But, um, so, so you've got to that point, you, you, you didn't you didn't get drafted, but you, you've got this huge passion. And obviously, you know, I believe that anyone that gets to an elite level in anything, has got some form of drive and real commitment and dedication discipline and the the, the uh, willingness to to deploy that grit motivated the self self motivated um so you know let's fast forward to around about, i think it's around two thousand fifteen where um you told me that you just you were just like no nah, I'm done doing what you were doing so maybe like tell me a bit more about that that moment and and what led to that that Seemingly snap decision, but, and then what ensued the ensued for the next couple of months? Cause it was all life changing for that moment from what I understand.
1: Yeah, it was. And I don't exactly know what it was, but yeah, i had been, you know, just coasting along in the career and I was working in recruitment in sales. I didn't like sales. Uh, and I, I think it was more so I just wasn't passionate about the recruitment industry, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd been at six years, was was making decent money. And I, yeah, I just walked into my boss's office one day and just quit I didn't have a job to fall back on. Uh, I just uh, knew that I wanted to be a writer and I, I couldn't make any more cold calls. And the example I was giving you yesterday was like it was making me physically ill. I was sitting in my office kind of shaking and, and felt like I was gonna vomit at the thought of picking up the phone and making it you know, cold call to some random client to sell them some bullshit. And it was just so inauthentic for me.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, I, I got to a point, yeah, 2015. So I was 31 and you know, just turned 31 and uh, yeah, just walked in and quit and said, I, oh, you know, I'm going to try and make it as a writer. And that was the turning point for me, you know, within, I think a month of, not having a job, you know, I get a call from my buddy who's been in recruiting um, or was still in recruiting, sorry. And he found a contract for me at one of the the big banks here in Toronto to, you know, make great money to write. Um, I ended up going on first date with my now wife. Um, And so it, it, it was a catalyst moment for all these things to change in my life. And, um, yeah, and, and then to to answer your kind of the first question about like how did you get here, that was kind of the probably the third key moment. Not getting drafted, moving to Toronto, so packing up two suitcases and not knowing anyone and moving to the other side of the world teaches yourself te- teaches you a lot about yourself. Absolutely, yeah. And then and then the third one was was that you know two or three month period where it's like no, I'm not doing this anymore, and then that got the ball rolling for yeah my career now um my wife uh all these different things that yeah provide me actual joy
0: yeah so but but like leading up to that moment though you've been doing some blogs sporadically like you've you'd been doing you've been writing and you were sort of blending yeah you because know, you love sports like you're across you know there's, there's probably you're know, one of the few people i know that can reel off you know all the different coaches from so many different sports and their and different stats and different things that um, kind of baffle me how you remember all that sort of stuff. But, um, but you're kind of blending the sport. But, and that's kind of where you've gone now is with your writing is that you've taken that to a place of going, well, I know so much about sport coaching and, and, um, and the culture of sport and how sports uh, teams are built, successful ones are built and how they've actually gone about it. And so you've started to blend that together with your writing and your, around leadership, culture, and uh, performance. So, so was that something that was purposeful in, in your focus like early in those days, like six years ago, where you were like, I'm going to blend these two things because I've got this knowledge around recruitment and, and this industries and these, this experience in corporate, but I can see the gaps. I can see where sports are thriving in their recruitment and leadership and culture and where organizations are just not. So was that was something that hit you straight away or before you quit your job? Was that a focus or was it something that as you started writing, you kind of went, man, like if organizations could deploy some of these strategies that sports have the courage and the, um, and the discipline to do or think outside the box, where could organizations, organizations be?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was probably a seed in it to start with. The, the first blog that I started <laughs> was called Sports Diatribe. And it was, it was basically a soapbox for me to address the rubbish way that, um, you know, Sports Centre and all the different TV networks talked about coaching and, and like, analyse games. And so yeah. I would basically go on there and say, look, I, I'm not an expert on hockey, but that's not what happened or I I, I've been in enough locker rooms to know that that wasn't the dynamic the way that they presented in the media so then I would start writing that right and it started it started to get a little bit of traction and then yeah it was kind of stepping stones there was a couple more stepping stones on the way to that but really what happened was yeah once I got into writing in the corporate world then I started to realize that for the last couple of years, I've been producing these blogs about coaching and leadership and how they actually work and the dynamics of them and how teams come together. And, and then I was also seeing that, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five. And then I'm also trying to build my own high performing team Saturday and Sunday with the national team or, you know, coaching the Hawks, like, uh, you know, you and I played together there. And so, I was just living this world of team building and organizational dynamics every, all day, every day. And so I yeah. started to write about that. And so, yeah, look, I, it wasn't the initial intent, but there was kind of this seed of intent in there to say, I, I can paint a different picture to what most people think it's like. Yeah. Um, because I've been in the boardroom and cause I've been in the locker room and so I I have a, a little bit of a unique perspective with
0: that. Absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's super cool. And so, so that's a, that blog then, with all the ideas and the correlations and the, I guess the um. The discrepancies between what you were witnessing in the corporate environment, and then in the sporting environment, led you to write your first book, where others won't. Um, which is a really interesting. Um, dive into sort of the, the ways, as I said, sports handle their culture, and build their cultures, leadership teams and structure their organizations to, to have success or build success. Um, and what drives them and how they all come together rather than how organizations are built and recruit recruitment. I know there's a lot of stuff around recruitment and the strategies around that and stuff. So maybe, uh, you know, give us give us some, some of the key factors around where you think uh, organisations are struggling that they could draw from the sporting world.
1: Yeah, so where I was writing the book about competitive advantage and, you know, back in 2017 when I was writing it, what was very clear was that organisations didn't perceive people as their competitive advantage which when you look at the history of business it, it, it hasn't been right there's always mm. been competitive advantage in logistics you know make a faster supply chain or price or superior product or there's all these different things that aren't human based yeah that are the basis of business and what I could see was this shift towards we better start valuing our people because you know, the internet has commoditized a lot of things. You can, you can build the next Facebook, but within 24 hours, some kid in a basement in Russia has replicated exactly what you had. Right. So Yeah. um, yeah, it became this, this thought process of for the last 150 years, all we've really had in sport is coaching like a leader and a team,
2: and yeah. so you've had
1: to you've had to under you've had to understand how to optimize talent, how to you know change talent to change the result, um, how to set people up for success, and so it, yeah, it was this perfect formula for the business world doesn't know how to do this but the sporting world's been doing it for 150 years. So I reckon there's some pretty All good right. ideas that have been quality tested over time to to get the ball rolling on this. So yeah. that that's the idea. And then what I went and did was interview people like um, Joe Dumas, who you know was the, the president and general manager of the, the Detroit Pistons when they won in 2004, you know, they beat, they be the famous Lakers team with Phil Jackson and Kobe and Shaq. Yeah. With a with a team of nobodies, you know. Uh, Ralph Kruger was another one, who the, the chairman of Southampton Football Club in the Premier League, but is actually a lifelong hockey coach, ice hockey coach, coached the Edmonton Oilers, and now is at the Buffalo Sabres.
0: So just on, is that is that what Ted Lasso, the um, Apple TV uh, show, is about? Is it based on that story? It could be. Okay. Be. Yeah, I've just started uh, watching it. Anyway, sorry, a segue. Uh, they just uh, made me click uh, on. Do you know how many? You know many have messaged,
1: so many people have messaged me about Ted Lasso. Oh, I've I've got Apple TV. I've got to watch it. It's cracker, um,
0: mate. It's great. You'll love it.
1: Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was that kind of idea, right? It's and that's what was interesting about Ralph is you you sit there and you go, oh, how the hell can a lifelong hockey coach go and just run a Premier League team? And and his answer is. I do nothing different from when I was a hockey coach to when I'm the chairman. It's like I manage people, I coach people. Um, you know, I, I put them in an environment, I listen to them, I we set them up for success. And you know, that's really the point to the to the business world is you have to create environments for these people. Like you have huge assets. The number one um line item on any financial uh, sheet for any business that has more than 10 people is the salaries of your people. This is your, your biggest ticket item. And yeah. at the moment, most organizations don't care and they don't see it as a competitive advantage. But this is what I'm trying to say to you is
0: it is, it's your biggest one. Yeah, I agree. 100%. And that's sort of, you know, where we sort of cross in our, in our, in our paths here a little bit is, you know, we talk about, You know, you talk about setting up an environment for your people to thrive in, you know, which is why I believe, you know, that embedding well-being, you know, individual and team well-being at the core of your, something you value as an organization to optimize your people, to be able to perform at work. So if you can, you know, like flow has been proven to, you know, productivity increases by 500%, creativity over 400%, pattern recognition, learning, all these Things, these attributes that you know um, organizations value you know it's been said that you know um, most CEOs think that the, the best skill to have moving forward is creativity is one of the most um, looked for sh- skills or should be looked for skills so if you know that you can deploy a culture or, or an environment where you can optimize your people that can access up to four hundred percent or more creativity while they're at work it's like why wouldn't you invest that money and time into your people to optimize them to help them gain such a huge competitive edge never mind the productivity and you can take that as from a performance perspective but then if you look at the the um if you're getting your people into flow and how you described it earlier around this euphoric feeling this thing sort of moves into one thing like and how you feel after that on the back end of that, where, because it increases empathy, trust, you know, because we, we think that there's, there's oxytocin on the back end of flow. Yeah, you know, so that there's all these neurochemicals that work in our advantage to to bring people together closer, to build deep connection. So when your people turn up for work, they're there for the same shared reasons, the environment's thriving, and, and your people are gonna show up as their best self, and they're gonna go home as their best self. They're not going to feel dejected from work. Enough. I've got to get for work again. To be excited to get work, but be excited to finish work and get home to their family or friends, and just, I just you know, I'm, I'm, my my vision is is that it just makes the world so much more of a, a better place to to exist. Um, but there's so many people that don't experience those things at work. Um, so so
2: what what does it and, what does it take for that the, sort of
1: Go ahead, mate. Yeah, I was just going to say the, here's the, the, the real key is that what we tend to do in business is we take all these, these great concepts and we try to shove them into the economic model of the past. So we, we want to measure productivity and we want to measure this and we want to measure that so that you know, we can filter it up to finance and they can take it to the CEO and say, is the ROI on this? But let me tell you something. There's no, there's no ROI. There's no measurement on creativity. You said 400% more creative. That, that's not a thing. You can't, you can't measure it. There's no, there's no minus 400% creativity or positive 400% creativity. There's just creativity. And so what, what I'm cautious of is us trying to just shove all these new ideas, mindfulness, creativity, um, setting people up for success into the old, can we measure it? Because this is, we're going to a whole new frontier and, you know, it's not about scalability. It's not about scaling creativity. It's not about scaling individualism. It's not about scaling mindfulness. It's about human beings at their optimum and the the snowball effect they can have on each other when they love showing up to work, like you said, and I've seen that in person recently and I tell you, it is the greatest thing in the world going to work and the people are sharp and they want to be there and they want to work on the project and yeah. and, and they want to work together and everyone's just whip smart and doesn't complain and just does the work and is able to be creative and the the manager doesn't stop them from being creative and try to command and control them at the same time. Uh, this is my recent work experience has changed my perspective on this at all. I I didn't think it was possible in the corporate space, but I've seen it recently and it's energised me so much. Yeah. But again, like it's not about measuring it and trying to put economics on it. It, It's about setting it up and and just trusting like we talked about before that the results at the end are just going to be infinitely greater.
0: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the uh, thing you, you, I I love that, you know, it is, it is hard to measure those, um, those things around, you know, how do you measure happiness in the workplace? You know, you can do a survey, but really like how are you, you know, unless you're sort of, you know, unless everyone's got an fMRI attached to them while they're working to scan their brain and see what's happening and which parts light up when and whatnot um it's really hard to you know like it's, it's going to be near impossible but well who knows what's down the track <laughs> yeah you know, maybe whoop bands are the closest thing to that right now um you know it's like testing heart rate variability and all this sort of cool stuff but um but yeah you, you know, how do you measure it it's, and it's that trust in the process i think like you know, there's enough science and evidence to to suggest that in implementing um you know, the, the, the things that underpin flow state into your organization or your culture, <clears throat> like a mindfulness or a gratitude practice or daily, daily exercise, you know, um, good nutrition, hydration, sleep, sleep just by improving your people's sleep quality will improve their performance drastically and their moods. And the, you know, like the, <laughs> there's so much data that shows us that people are not sleeping enough. And even if they are sleeping enough, they're not getting the quality of sleep they need because of you know we can go into technology, you know screens at night, how it affects our our, um, our eyes and, and the, the chemicals that that releases, with the melatonin, serotonin, all this sort of crazy stuff. But but if you can teach people to optimize their sleep, if that was the only thing you did in an organisation, the the impact would be quite significant. But it takes. Um, like your book, you know, suggests like it takes courage to step outside the box and think and go where others want, which is, I love the title of that book because it, it, it's so true. Like how do you go where others want and lead the way and have the courage that and trust that process that this is going to work out. And there are leaders out there doing that um, as you and you probably know um, some great examples of that. But I guess I want to ask like, what's, what's one or two of your best, um, stories around um, an organisation from a sporting background that have gone outside the, the, the thinking box a little bit. And, um, you know, something that stands out is the Joe Montana story you told in your book. Um, you know, something around those lines that you think is a, a really one of your most, most prolific sort of findings through that.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about that one, because I think, for one, if you haven't heard of or read bill walsh's work you should if you if you're interested in this stuff and you think this is new whatever we're talking about like this guy was talking about it in 1978 from yeah. a, a, a culture perspective from a recruitment perspective um n- none of what we're talking about he wasn't talking about in the 80s and yeah. so um you know, from a culture perspective, from an optimization perspective, from a leadership perspective, like this guy just had it nailed. And but yeah, that's, that, that's a great example, right? So it, it's, it's Joe Montana and, and Jerry Rice. So perhaps the two greatest NFL players of all time in not just in their positions. Like if you had to make a list of everyone against everyone else, they're probably in the top three were undersized, uh, couldn't do the basics of the position. Like you read their scouting reports for Montana
0: and, and Rice, and they they're basically just rubbish. I know, and you do, you show that, in the, you talk about that in the book, and it's just like, it's insane. When I read that, I'm like, this, that's just crazy. Like yeah. how they just then, went on paper look like they were designed for those positions.
1: Right. And so what Walsh did was put them in positions to utilize what they could do. And the, the irony of it is, again, uh, uh, this is what I mean. This guy was doing it in the seventies before he, he even knew what he was doing, but the West coast offense is what he's most famous for from a tactical perspective. And it's still prevalent in the NFL today. It's, it's still the kind of core um, game plan, offensive game plan that most of these teams run Before right. the, the West coast offense was, was that Bill Walsh, when he was the offensive coordinator in Cincinnati, before he became a head coach, was working with a quarterback who could throw really well-timed passes over a a small to medium distance. And so rather than say, well, he can't do this, he can't do that, positive intent, what can he do? And so he designed the whole offensive system around times passes that were short to medium length.
2: Yeah.
1: Who, who won the passing um, championship, championship that year? Um, that quarterback, right? Yeah. And so they then took that system and then, you know, Montana goes and plays in it, same kind of idea. Um, and, and so it's not revolutionary. It's just going, well, what can this person do? And let's design something around that. And I think that's just the most extraordinary lesson because we we tend to have negative intent about people, right? We tend to, to bring them into our organisation under the guise of you've got all these great skills and then we just, you know, try to slot them in and, you know, the command and control kind of idea and strip away their, what they can do and, and talk more about what they can't do. and Yeah, it's very backwards, but... Yeah, when you look at something as as simple as sport, there are
0: examples there. Say, so, what can this person do? So building building your entire organization around the actual skills of your people, but finding the people that can execute those skills really well, and then designing everything around that. Like it's it's almost like a no-brainer, really. Like when you when you nail it down, that's that's simple, um, because that would play into their because then, you, then you're optimizing their strengths. Because we all have strengths. Mm-hmm. But as you said, when we, if we get a job, we we'll go into an organization and then, you and, then you're micromanaged or you, you, you're being asked to do things that aren't in your wheelhouse, that aren't your strength. Well, one, you're not going to enjoy it. But if you're doing things you're good at, you're going to enjoy it more. You're going to be more successful. You're going to build on it. But understanding what those, those strengths are. And I quite often use the analogy of, you know, you wouldn't put a, um, you not you wouldn't necessarily put a um, full forward um, on the ball in AFL. Do you know what I mean? Like if, you know, and sort of maybe that's talking back, back 20, 30 years ago when full forwards were, were real full forwards. <laughs> but, um, you know, you wouldn't put Tony Lockett on the ball, right? You put him in the goal square and get him to run a short distance to get to the ball, lead, out muscle a guy to take a mark to execute his main skill, which is kicking a goal which would lead, that was his thing to do. That was his role on the team. He knew it, it was in his wheelhouse. It was all based around his strengths and it led to him being one of the greatest ever. So it's that same philosophy. So, so why aren't organizations doing this? Why aren't organizations going, okay, Cody, you, you, we, we wanna employ you for this role, um, come in and then, and it's my take, my limited experience with organisations uh, from, a, from a working with them perspective is that, yeah, we love all these things you can do, but we're not going to lean on that. We're actually going to get you to do all these things instead. So why are organisations not empowering their people to um, utilise their strengths and building frameworks or um, KPIs around what they can do rather than what they can't do?
2: They're just, they're just ravaged by fear. So,
1: managers are ravaged by fear. So, you know, the, the, the flow on of what we're talking about with Bill Walsh is obviously he had to spend a lot of time with his scouts, working with them and saying, you know, this is what we're looking for. I want you to scout this way. It's, you know, yeah, write your scouting reports. Uh, about what people can do and I, I write about that in the book as well right so you've got to change the scouting report you've got to change the scouting mentality of, of the guys that are all around the country and this is you know this is pre-internet remember this is the 70s so you these were literally guys in cars all around the united states but you have to get them together and say this is what we to come back with and we we just don't you know, leaders these days don't do that work. They don't do the work to change the mentality of people, to you know, to kind of I'll say authorize, but you know, empower their people to, to make decisions, to to be okay with going against the game, to, mm. to go where others won't. And the the primary example, I know I'm I'm kind of talking a lot about recruiting, but if you go on LinkedIn and you go to McDonald's and you go to Apple and you go to Amazon and you go to Telstra, every single job description on the whole site is exactly the same. But if you go to every company in the world, they will say, we're so different. Right. Well, how, how are you being different? You've, you've all got the same cultural identity because Harvard Business Review told you so. I told you to use these words. You've all got exactly the same job description. So the entry point to your organization is exactly the same as every organization in the world. Right. And so this is what I mean is there's this box that you need to be in Mm. and, and people, people and organizations are fearful to go outside of that box and, and create a new hiring process and not maybe not post job descriptions at all, find another way to do it. Um, you know but there's very few people that I can think of that actually do that. Like Gary Vaynerchuk is probably one yeah. where he'll say, oh, I'll hire someone straight off social media. Don't even need to see a resume. Yeah. If, I can, if I can see their, their Twitter or their Instagram, I can tell what they're capable of and I'll hire them on the spot.
0: Yeah. He's doing if all eh? right. I'd right. <laughs> say Gary's doing all right. <laughs> yeah and i guess and, and as you said there are probably in the grand scheme of things fewer people willing to to take those risks and 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 bet on people and then back their people educate people train them and they, i love that bit around you know the shifting the, the language you know we change our scouting reports let's change our um our job descriptions our hiring processes and, you know that all takes courage and it also takes time to embed a new language. It's like what we talk talking about, you know, perf- high performance language around, you know, if you said to me 20 years ago, you need to, I want you to practice gratitude every day as a, as an athlete, I would be like, what? Yeah. The, you know, my yeah, mind, probably would be like, yeah. that'll probably make me weaker. <laughs> right. But right. that's not the case. It's going to make me stronger. But so there's a shift in language and, and, and stuff that takes, you know, does it start with purely the leader at the top, well, can it be, do you, do you believe it can be infiltrated from, you know, somewhere down on a management level, um, you know, away from the top, say, the, the CEO, the top executives? Do you think it can be infiltrated from down below? Or do you think it needs to
2: start at the top? Yeah,
1: I, I think it's both. I think, you know, certainly the CEO and the traditional, you know, figureheads of organizations need to live what they're saying that they live so the the cultural values the you know if we're telling people to take time off you can't be a ceo that never goes on vacation right like you you need to validate the culture yourself knowing that it trickles down but then also to your point is particularly in large organizations what we need to acknowledge is that there is there isn't one culture there's no such thing as like one culture. that's, that's a myth. that. There are, there are micro-cultures. So, you know, you think about the skyscrapers that are in every major city and, and you know, your organisation might be on three floors. Well, so there's a, a culture on that floor and then there's a culture in the accounting department and then there's a culture in the HR department and there's a culture in the sales department. So they're all micro-cultures. Then people go into the lunchroom, that's another culture. All the people that eat their lunch in the lunchroom, that's a culture. And so what we need to acknowledge is that those microcultures matter. And how do we foster them rather than trying to get rid of them? Because at the moment what we do is like don't don't you know, don't talk about football on on you know Tuesday morning at the water cooler because that might upset people. But, but what if we said, well, everyone's talking about football at the water court on Tuesday morning, what can we do to, to foster that? And, and who are the leaders? Like, who are the ring leaders? Because they're obviously influencers on the floor. So how do we maybe give them more leadership within the workplace? Because they're showing leadership tendencies, right? And so yeah. that's, that's how we need to start thinking about it, is we, you don't just slap up a couple of words on the wall and say, this is what everyone does. Because that's that's not true. Not everyone in in France eats baguettes, right? Like we need we need to acknowledge that everyone's an individual, and they might be working towards this same goal, and and ultimately adhering to these four words on the wall or whatever it is. But within that, they're an individual, and their interactions within the the bigger culture are actually small interactions.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's that's a such a, an awesome way to look at it and really like understand that there are little micro cultures because each little different environment or, you know, a lunch break will will bring out something different in, in, in everybody, you know, when, when they're at lunch, you know, when they're at the water cooler and chances are you and I will be the ones standing at the water cooler talking about football for probably a lot longer than what we should be at work. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> exactly. But how do you harness that? So recognizing rather than going, guys, like, stop wasting time, like, what's, what are the skills that are leading to something like that? What are the skills that are going unnoticed that can lead to a moment of um, bringing people together? You know, and, and there's probably lots of cool different ways that you come up with fostering that. So really that, that's kind of, that was awesome. I love that analogy that we, we do need to recognize there are microcultures and how do you, uh, how do you harness that? So it's, yeah. And, just. and it's, ev- it's everywhere, right?
1: Like what we do is we, we look at it from a, an organizational chart and you see all these departments, but like take my job as a writer is I, I would be in, you know, the user experience team or the, the content department but I actually wouldn't work with the other writers. I would work on projects. So I, I work with a project manager, you know, all these other people, salesperson, product. So that's actually the culture that we should be looking at. And, and that exact same thing happens in sporting organizations where if a player does his knee, his or her knee, they spend a whole year in the physio room with the physio, with the, you know, the lunch ladies who, you know, make the tea for everyone and, you know, another trainer, that's a little microculture there. So, you know, that's what I mean. We need to really think about who are the groups that hang out and then who's influencing them and yeah, make sure that we harness those. And again, approach them with positive intent rather than going, no, 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 like, we, we don't want you to chit chat about Coronation Street.
0: <laughs> Great analogy. Is that one of your weak points, there, Cody? Did you just let something out of the bag that we, uh, we need to talk about? <laughs> um, cool. So, so I think you, you started to touch on here, and I want to I just, just want to touch on uh, um, before we wrap up, because I, I, you know, I know we could probably go on about this for for hours upon end. But um, yeah, so you're writing a new book, um, and it's called The Tough Stuff. And um, and this is kind of leading in from what we said, you know, that as, as leaders leading from the front, leading themselves first, optimizing themselves first and foremost, so that they can influence and lead others in the uh, culture or the, the habits or the, the, the vibe that they want in their organization. And you said, you know, if you, you can't be, you know, um, expecting your, team to harness or optimize their sleep if you're sending emails at 11 30 p.m. at night or at midnight and then you know they wake up the next morning and they've got six emails from the from the boss <laughs> on i need this this and that, and it comes through at you know midnight so that's kind of what we're talking about with the tough stuff so so give me a bit, bit more insight into how this book came about and where the direction you're, you're taking that because i really i'm really excited by it
2: what you're
1: working on right now. Yeah. Thanks mate. It was, yeah, it's funny because, you know, we've talked about kind of flow and I've been trying to write another book for about three years and I had a lot of missteps really. And they just, they were good ideas that didn't really flow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, I should. Um, we should. Um, what I should do with my guests is, is have a drinking game. We should have like a, a bottle yeah, of Jack or something. You every time someone says "flow," you've got to do a shot. Um, <laughs> or maybe that's that, maybe that's the game for the listeners that they can uh, they can sit yeah. around in a, in a group and play uh, the flow the flow shot game. You should, you should have a little um, sound effect
1: that plays after someone says. it. But yeah, like it's funny that we're talking about it because again, I'm I'm quite in tune with how I write. And then this idea was just one where it just came bursting out of me. And that's how I knew it was the right one. And yeah, it's a COVID baby because I'm, you know, I'm a head coach. I'm lucky in that I have access to a lot of professional head coaches all around the world. And so when, you know, first lockdown happened on March 12th or whatever, I just started messaging everyone being like, Hey, let's catch up. Because every head coach on the face of the planet was doing the same
2: thing. Yeah.
1: Not much. Not much. And so then, you know, inevitably what happens, and you know this, when, when coaches start talking to other coaches, you may as well just, go into the back corner of the kitchen and at the party and just phase everyone else out because you can talk for hours and hours about coaching. Right. Yeah. And so we started talking about how everyone was feeling and the, you know, the, the emotional toll of COVID and then it started to morph into all these other things that, you know, uh, optimization and, and improvement in coaching and improvement in self. And what I realized was there was a massive gap there. And to be clear here, you know i'm i'm actually being very very narrow with this 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 book is directed at head coaches of team sports
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and and what they're put through at the professional level and at most levels and a lot of people think about it you know it's a weight of expectations and all these different things but it's it's everything pricey it's it's the sleeplessness it's the um, you know, the weight of caring is the, um, yeah, it's like the, the media. It's the fact that they're actually unprepared for the fact that when they become a head coach, they're actually taken away from coaching. A lot of them don't, you know, they're not on the grass with a whistle moving cones around anymore. They're, you know, they're managing departments. They're more like CEOs. Um, and then because just through the nature of it, particularly men, because they're not equipped to deal with their emotions, they, they don't know how to deal with, you know, all the changes that go on with themselves. And so they you know, might go and drink, or they might uh, just yeah uh, get three hours sleep on the office futon because they think they have to be watching film. Yeah. And so we're really just on a hiding to nothing with that. And we're just driving more and more head coaches into the ground earlier. Um, and so I want to start to normalize some of these conversations. Like, go home, fellas. Like, go home, see your wife, sleep at the house, see your kids. Like, I, I see that as the biggest performance improver, more, the, more so than what people can squat and, you know, like all these other things that we're chasing. How about we optimize the coaches so they can optimize the players?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the best thing. And I think that, and before we it uh, caught up yesterday, I, you know, and I, I didn't know what the next book was about and everything like that. And uh, we sort of crossed, you know, one of the things that I'm working on right now is a, a flow for coaches leaders program, which is, uh, which is, is all around that. Like how to, how to optimize the coach to be able to to, to, to utilize the skills and have a plan in place that that looks after them first and foremost, because in my experience as a national squash coach, um, athlete well-being has been a big, big, big subject here in Australia for the last couple of years. And, and the AIS are investing a ton of money uh, into athlete well-being. But the conversation is around athlete well-being. And it segues into coach well-being, but there's, they're not, um, as you said, normalizing it that Hey, these coaches are under a lot of stress. And, and if I take my experience as the coach of the Commonwealth Games team in 2018 here on the Gold Coast, you know, we were in the village for three weeks um, and, and, and squash competes for all 10 days straight with singles and doubles. So we found ourselves pretty much for a better part of those three weeks at squash courts, um, average nutrition, not hydrating enough, not sleeping enough, like getting back to the to the village into our rooms at like 11 or later at night up at six or, you know, earlier amount know, and who knows how many hours of sleep you actually got. And then by the end of the event, it's just, you're just done. And there's you're dealing with 10, 12 different athletes and it's all, it's just, it's chaos. And there's lots of moving parts. There's lots of things, you know, players getting treatment, organizing treatments and different things. And, um, and then you also got on top of that, you've got players' egos. Um, this person likes that person and not as much as that one. And, you know, and that's probably more so coming from an individual sport that you get more of that sort of stuff, but um, it is taxing. So when I think of that experience and I think about head coaches of big organizations or big teams, that the ones that you're sort of, um, you know, talking to and, and, and gaining um, information around their experience, what they have to deal with on a macro level in comparison to what I was for such a long period of time, you know, a season. Um, like the impact on that has got to be drastic. And if there's no focus on those coaches to help them thrive and optimize themselves, if they're kind of left to their own vices to to worry about them like who's looking after the coach doesn't the coach need a coach doesn't the coach need somebody to go hey it's time to go home buddy like like let's put these boundaries in place and stick to them because we know that if you don't sleep enough if you don't hydrate well enough you're not exercising you're not doing all the right things um, and optimizing your mindset then there's shit that you're gonna miss tomorrow at game day and and you said yesterday, you use the example of like if the head coach is not going to sleep because they're up at watching tape at night, the friggin' video analysis guy, and then the other the sports scientists and the other guys on his team, the other coaches who are trying to get towards that head coaching role or to get promoted or whatever they're looking for, recognition, acknowledgement, they ain't going home either. So now you friggin' deoptimizing your whole team to perform the next day or the next you know. A training or competition but yet you're expecting your athletes to be in bed by 10 and, and stretching and all these other things but yet you aren't doing any of those things and dragging your team with you yeah exactly and, and here's the irony of it pricing is that of,
1: of all the people we, we are experts in human optimization so like that, that's what a head coach does and and has right so we we know the impact of lack of sleep on the prefrontal cortex. And we know that the prefrontal cortex helps moderate mood, helps decision-making, helps um, you know, us, us navigate changing circumstances. Well, I, literally, this is what we do. But we, we just go, well, the, here's, here it is for the players. They can make better game day decisions. But we yep. apply none of that to ourselves. And so that, that's where we need to go with this is, Yeah. How, how do we start to move the needle on all of this? Sleep is one. We, yeah. You create a culture of fatigue when you don't go home as the head coach, but it's also nutrition. It's also, um, you know, seeing your, your your wife and daughter, Um, you know, there was, there's been quite a few kind of sad examples recently. Like I was watching um, the soccer coach, Scott Parker, who played for England and is now coach of Fulham, and they they won what's called the richest game in the world and they uh, won their way up into the Premier League. And afterwards, he, he, they asked him on Sky Sports, you know, can you enjoy moments like this? So you, you just won the richest, it's called the richest game in the world. You go up into the Premier League, this is his first year as a coach, can you enjoy moments like this? And he's like, not really he's like on sunday i'll be you know eating some chinese uh, looking forward to, to next year and then he goes on, he says i'm really looking forward to my wife having her husband back and my my kids having their dad back like this is his first year how sad is that his first These year U.S. About US even he's, exactly and he's spent and this is this and this is part of the misunderstanding right people go now, former players know what they're in for because they they're around the game. Scott Parker played for twenty years he played for England he, he played for you know some of the biggest clubs in the world and after one year of coaching, absolutely taxed and can't enjoy maybe what will be the ultimate thing that he does as a coach um, and that's what I mean is like we're just we're just driving these guys into the ground and we're, we're you know, it can't continue on this path, and yeah. like it's going to get really bad, and it's going to take something really drastic. But something drastic's going to happen, and we, yeah, we just can't let it happen.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that we share that passion around that, um, because you're right. It is. um I think you nailed it on the head there. You know, as an athlete, you know, for myself, being a former athlete, coaching. And I think you tweeted about this um, not too long ago about um, like as an athlete you just you have no concept of how heavy the weight is on a coach on the decisions that need to get made the decisions to to not select players or to to leave someone out or potentially to to implement some sort of discipline around certain things or setting boundaries and, and, and holding standards and, and all these things that need to that go along with the with the role as an athlete. You just you just have no concept of how heavy that weight is on a coach and how uh, impactful it is on their personal well-being. And it's not just that; like it, it filters right. It, it's the ripple effect of that. Thinking, um, how does it affect their family? As you said, like this this guy who's taxed and he's. I'm looking forward to my wife having a husband back and my kids having their father back. Like the impact goes on. So, the impact of those kids not seeing their dads, what happens to them? And you know, what's the impact of, on them? And how do they impact others that they're around? And the why, you know, it's there's, there's such a bigger picture involved than just even like if we think about if we narrow it down to the coach's well being, because the coach is, is influencing and um, is cared by and loved by a lot of different people. Um, And that's one of the things that I noticed towards the end of being a national coach when I resigned was that the environment that I was subjected to meant that I couldn't, mostly I couldn't get the best out of myself and my family were definitely not getting the best of me. You know, and, and that was, that was when I had that realization, I was like, no, this is, there's, there's, this is not worth it. This is just not worth it at all. Um, But, you know, again, you know, there, there's, there's, um, coach. you know, as a squash coach, you know, squash, we don't have the media. We don't have the, all this stuff, you know, you know it, it's the same stuff, but it's just on a bigger scale. Um, it's a bit more frantic for, for the guys in, in high profile sports. Um, but the way to deal with it on a micro level or a macro level, it's the same strategies to so over to improve your well-being, to have more, to be able to sort of um, look for more optimistic viewpoints as if you watch Ted lasso, mate, you'll see the guys, the most optimist person on the planet. Um, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. to to get your Ted lasso on, right? Like it's just, there's there's the strategies and the, the skill acquisition to do that is the same, you know, from whether it's dealing with some stress at home or whether, you know, as a, as a father or as a, as a mother, um, dealing with some stress at work, whether you're, in a, in a CEO position, or even on a, yeah, you know, on, on a junior level, like the strategies to um, deal with stress, overwhelm, burnout, um, and all that sort of stuff, depression, anxiety, that they're all the same strategies. You know, there's a bunch of tools that need to be developed that we need to upskill people on um, yeah. to be able to go. Well, this is how you manage these things. And, and it's like pre-injury programs, you know? Like, we only start doing, we only start to meditate after we've had a breakdown. We only start, you know, we only do things after we've suffered a consequence. But if you had, um, you know, like athletes, will do a, um, um, a body management program or pre-injury program. They'll do exercises to, to make sure that their body doesn't break down in certain ways. Yet no one. Well, I, I shouldn't say no one. Majority of people aren't given the, the tools or skills to go. Here's how you manage your your stress levels, your mood, and things like that. And you should deploy these daily so that you don't get injured. You don't get you know get as frustrated. You don't get stressed. Now stress is good for us in a lot of for a lot of reasons, but how we perceive that. So we need to train how we perceive stress and how we deal with it. So this. I don't know. I'm sort of going off on a bit of a tangent there. Let me, let me, two two things, two last thoughts to wrap
1: this up. Um, I know you think you went off on a tangent there, but you you just nailed that. So that's a you should grab that as a as a snippet of promotion (laughs) for the podcast. But um, if if you catch yourself, if anyone's listening to this and you catch yourself saying it's okay because coaches are paid ten million dollars for what they do. Like you kind of need to check yourself with that because, like, how many examples do we need of, you know, celebrities jumping off buildings and and or you know, put you know, putting a toaster in the bathtub, for us to realise that it's got nothing to do with how much you're remunerated for what you do. Like we we just need to stop thinking that we can throw more human uh, bodies at the problem because there are solutions that we already have. Again, and that's the thing with sport is we know what those human optimisation, um, philosophies and, and, um, and things are that we can give to, to coaches, just like we give to other performers. Money has nothing to do with it and how well they're remunerated for what they put through. Um, so uh, yeah, just, I, I'd urge people to catch themselves if you feel, uh, you know, $10 million, you should be able to put up with it. That's uh, rubbish. Yeah. And That's then, part of the problem.
0: That mindset
1: is part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Way, right? And then, second to that is, uh, yeah, part of the problem again is just um, you know men aren't socialized to communicate about this kind of stuff. And and this is what this is my big crusade is is we need to find ways to do that. And so, um, communicating better for me is. Um, A couple of things. One, I think it's criminal that self-talk is thought of differently to communication skills Um, and, you know, kind of bundled in with psychology. I understand from a scientific and an academic perspective that makes sense, but your communication skills include how you talk to yourself. And so we need to find ways to to navigate that better. Again, I'm talking particularly to men because I know men. I've been in men's sport. I'm a man, Um, but this is everyone. and then yeah like also consider your behavior and what that is communicating because like we were talking about not going home is is a bigger communication about what's acceptable and how you perceive yourself and how you perceive the job and what you're fearful of than anything you could say so yeah and so and so that's what I mean is like communication, need, we need to up it in all its different forms, including self-talk, including behaviour and, and, yeah, also be comfortable asking for help. Um, I think those are the, the big things that I'm on a crusade to change ultimately and that's what this book is aimed at. But, I, yeah. yeah, I think that they're the problems that we can actually step up to the plate with, and rather than just saying, oh, there's all these different things. Well, let's talk about them and let's start to normalize them and say, um, yeah, you know, my, uh, I'm be working on my self-talk or um, whatever it may be. And yeah, be leaders in those categories rather than, try, you know, being victims.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that, man. That's, that's really awesome. And just on that, you know, with the, um, and and we have been a little bit focused on the the male side of uh, of this conversation, but you know, in, in in working with some female athletes as well, like there's, you know, these skills are vitally important for 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 everyone to develop and and to and to use because I think I think that and you know, open for discussion around this um, and probably at another time, but and for any listeners that want to. Um, Voice their opinion on this or gives feedback is that you know when uh, peak performers, high performers are high performers, and and when and we sort of come through as high performers, be it male, female, or otherwise, however you uh, re- recognize yourself, you you have these attributes that are, that you're driven, and 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 we're, we're sort of again we grow up in a culture where it's all about just sort of suck it up a little bit and keep going. And I not matter if you're driven and there's an element of that grip that you sort of deploy inauthentically a little bit without recognizing the need to step back and go, I need to just take a step. And and resting and recovering is really important for not just my physical, but for also my mental capabilities. Um, but peak performers are peak performers and there's there's a lot of correlation between no matter what gender you, are you you uh, come from that um, are parallel that uh, that affect us in the same ways. So, you know, so burnout is a very big um, thing that you see with athletes quite often, especially the younger ones, because they don't know how to manage their, their expectations that they feel externally and internally. They don't know how to manage their stress and overwhelm um, and and all the other varying. Um, Stimulus that comes at them from being a high performer. So it's, and, and that's, yeah, you know, I, I share that passion with you. Is educating people around that it's it's okay to put your hand up and go, I'm really struggling with this, and and it's been great, in particular here in Australia. You know, the the AFL, you know, being a big AFL fan. And unfortunately, there's been some really um, a lot more players now putting their hand up going, I'm fucking, I'm struggling here. I need some help. And we are starting to normalize this. And one thing um, that I thought was amazing, um, you know, I've, had, I've got a lot of respect for this player, as a player, um, Dusty Martin. And um, for obvious reasons, the guy's phenomenal. But to look at the guy who's covered pretty much head to toe in tattoos, shaved head with a little slight mohawk in it, looks rough as, rough as nails. Um, a couple of weekends ago um, at halftime interview they interviewed him around his his uh, the things he does and who he is. And he ended the conversation with um, saying, we get, they asked him what they felt was the differentiator in his performances from his early years to, to the latter years. And he said um, something along the lines of, he goes, I, I now practice daily gratitude and meditation. and And I thought that was, epic because imagine how many young kids just heard dusty Martin who they idolize say that the key to his peak performance was a daily gratitude and meditation practice and how that shifts the culture and conversation you know so so there are people out there doing great things around this space and and uh, it's um and, and you are definitely one of those guys so it's ai uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm glad we share that passion about it and there's so many great examples of it, but, but unfortunately the, the global, on a global scale, it, it's a, it's a, it's a pandemic on its own in a way. So, so yeah. It is. But, yeah. Um, the,
1: the, the only, the, the, I'll hook onto that just because this is another great example and I would imagine mostly Australians listen to this, but um, if you haven't yet uh, look up Hugh Jackman's episode on Tim Ferriss, and listen to how Hugh prepares himself uh, as a performer. And then there's a section in it, that, and I've just been writing about this um, in the book where he actually talks about how he kind of had imposter syndrome going on with Tim Ferriss. And really? And so, and so, just just to take a step back here, this is, this is Wolverine and this is like, you know, like the, the, the ultimate sign of, of manliness. And uh, he's, he's an Academy award away from the EGOT, Um, you know, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, Um, you know, so literally has, has everything. Yeah. You know, and, and we, we, as outsiders, we perceive people like that and we're like, Oh, you know, he's, he's great, but he's, he's fine. And he's like, you know, uh, you know, I go on a lot of you know, breakfast television and all these talk shows and everything. And it's kind of a performance. He's like, I was nervous to come on Tim Ferriss cause he, he, he's like, I, um, I, I listen to the shows. Like it's the only bit of media I really consume and I always take away something that changes my life from all the episodes. He's like, I don't think that I'm at that level. And, and then he specifically says, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I want you to know that I have fears that I'm not good enough. So if Hugh Jackman has imposter syndrome, uh, I think it kind of validates that everyone else is allowed to have it and can and can be okay with it because <laughs> it's be much sh-
0: better than Wolverine, man. Yeah, like you know, and, and we should and we should have. It. I think that's a natural, it's a natural process. It's part of that struggle phase. It's like when you when you start something, you know. It's like when I shifted careers from squash into you now performance and mindset flow coaching. I went through a huge period of that, going, you know, what is that? But it's but coming out on the other side of it now, I'm just going, wow, like that was, I struggled through that. So I, it's the ability to draw confidence from that going, I did that. And even, you know, and we've done this on so many different examples through our life that we can draw on where we've had to overcome an imposter syndrome, fear of failure, fear of rejection or whatever, that we kind of just push in the background going, we forget about that. But rather than, you know, and and, and, and one of our, our favorite people on the planet that we like to that we share is Michael Gervais talks about, you know, like write that, write that stuff down. Like write those moments of adversity down and, and, and recognize them so you can, you can draw on that stuff like that. That can build confidence. It can help you go cool. It may not feel any different this time round, but I know that just by taking a step forward that not, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe not the next day. But soon enough, after a number of days of pushing against this, I'm going to be on the other side of it because I've done it 50,000 times before in my life, whether it's like asking that girl to go on a date or whether it's, you know, playing your first competition, playing your first game, playing, learning to walk, for God's sake. Like there's so many examples of where you didn't know if you could do it and you felt like by telling somebody that you can do something that it's there you're being vulnerable, like so. We're it's it's pretty um, so normalizing that stuff. That's that's huge. I'm going to go back and listen to that. So for sure, yeah. Yeah,
1: I I agree with you. It, it, you should have it. You're right. And then the the second part of that is it's not just the beginners, and that it can come back. You know, and possibly can come at any time. If if Hugh Jackman has it, he's literally the greatest performer on the face of the planet. And if yeah. if he's uh, you know, as an expert is at expert level in pretty much everything he does. If he still, you know, struggles to do a radio interview, essentially, you know, the podcast, the radio interview, yeah, then you, yeah, it, it can come back at any time. But again, it, it, it's your point is becomes normalizing that, you know, that that's an expected part of the, the human journey. And that it is going to come and go and, you know, it can come when you're an expert. It mostly comes when you're a beginner, but it can come back and yeah, yeah. just lean into it and be like, that's okay.
0: It's just part cool. of up-leveling, right? It's just part of that next little part of your journey. Like every time you put yourself out there just a little bit more, you know, I used to, to tell myself when I played squash that if I didn't feel nervous, then there was something wrong. Yeah. And if I felt nervous, I was like perfect. It meant that um, I cared about what I was about to do. And that I knew that it would bring the best out of me, yeah. Because I cared so much, and that was the way I framed nerves. Going, I was nervous if I didn't have nerves. <laughs> but so you know what I mean? Like it yeah. was. Um, so yeah, and, and that kind of leads that kind of back to that flow cycle again. Like that's the struggle phase. Like that's the thing. Like you can't get to flow because, as you said, you know, there's a level of expertise that comes with flow, a little a level of mastery that. Um, allows you to get to that place. So you've got to lean into that fear. And uh, and as you said, like if someone like Hugh Jackman can come out and say, I'm shitting bricks right now <laughs> because I don't think I'm good enough um, to talk to Tim Ferriss. Um, and Tim Ferriss has probably watched every movie that that Hugh Jackman's ever made and is probably feeling the exact same way on the other side of the interview. Mm-hmm. And such something so amazing comes from that. Like that's... We got to go. Well, oh, that's that's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. That's what you're looking for. That struggle. So freaking jump in and have a crack. Because what's on the other side is is what you're looking for. Hundred percent. Yeah. So to so just give me a quick sort of synopsis of the the new book that's coming out, went about and uh, and also a little bit about your podcast. We haven't talked about because you've got an awesome podcast. And I love your concept. I almost stole your concept on your podcast. Um, and, I, and I'm probably still going to use it to a little bit where you, you, you quite often you bring two guests on to talk about a topic or a situation or have a discussion, which leads to this sort of real kind of beautiful flow of different perspectives and, and add-ons that sort of grows. So um, it's such a great conversation that I, every time I listen to your podcast, I get so much out of it. So so maybe gives a little bit of a, you know, a couple of liners yeah. on those things, and then where we can find you, how people can tap in, engage with you, and follow you, um, because you know people should be following you because you're doing awesome things, and I want to make sure that they do. Yeah, thanks, mate. Um, and yeah, you wouldn't be the the first one
1: to copy the concept, so um, consider it yours. But yeah, it's called Where Others Won't as well. The the podcast it was an opportunity for me to continue the conversations off the back of the book. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to do a podcast. I didn't want to be a podcast wanker. And um, it was funny talking of flow on a flight back from my wedding, you know, just weeks, two weeks of being around everyone that I love and feeling so much love and and, uh, I wrote out the whole concept for the podcast on the flight home from, um, from Dublin. And, uh, yeah. So my idea was, you know, there was a way that podcasting was done already, which for podcasts, you know, it's unregulated. And so you don't have to do it the same way as everyone else. It's just it's magical blank canvas. Yeah. And it was already, it was already really rigid and I kind of hated that. And I thought, well, if I'm just going to interview people, why would anyone listen to me interview the same person that Tim Ferriss is going to interview? So what I, yeah, what I did was I handpicked people who were talking about the same things, but maybe didn't know each other and uh, pair them together around the same concept. And then we, we all, the three of us jam on, on that concept. So, you know, for instance, there's the first episode is, is Joe Dumas from the Detroit Pistons and Adam Grant, the author. And we talk about humility. And, um, you know, Michael Jordan called Joe Dumas his toughest opponent, but he refuses to take any credit for it and says, well, I had teammates as well. And then, you know, Adam Grant is literally the guy on humility from an academic perspective. So, you know, the, the snowball effect of of three people talking about it and bouncing ideas off each other. And, um, you know, for the audience, I thought that such a better experience Mm.
2: um,
1: than just sitting through me um, talking to to them individually. So, so that's kind of a concept that becomes harder to organize over time. So there are quite a few, you know, single episodes now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, check it out where others won't. It's on you know, Spotify, iTunes, or all the normal ones. Uh, yeah, the, the new book will be out probably early next year. I'd say it'll be called the tough stuff. And yeah, I've you'll recognize plenty of names. If you follow sport you know, in Australia or North America or the UK that have talked to me about some of this stuff. Um, Yeah. I really want to put my hand up and and normalize what we've been talking about here today, pricey and some of the struggles and, and try to move the needle a little bit for some people because people are asking for it and I have the DMs to back that up and um, they just need someone probably outside the, you know, the inner sanctum of the sport to, start to talk about it but
0: so i'm happy to do that
1: and um uh, yeah so i you know if you're interested in that uh, you can find more about me or get in touch with me it's just codyroyal.com and that's got links to my podcast uh, the book when it goes up you know newsletter all that sort of stuff
2: and then yeah, yeah
1: twitter and link twitter and linkedin are my two um you know big social platforms and I'm easy to find because there's, I don't, I think there's one kid in Denver, Colorado that has the same name as me, but otherwise I'm, I'm pretty much set for <laughs> all the, the handles on Instagram and Twitter and everything. So. Nice. So, so Twitter's
0: at, at, at Cody Royal.
1: Twitter's at Cody Royal. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. I'm big on Twitter. I'm a writer, obviously I'm much more uh, Twitter than Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. So
2: yeah. yeah
1: cool. Um, and my, my, my DMs are open. You know, people can get in touch with me anytime. I'm always happy to talk about coaching and leadership and, and sport.
0: Yeah, awesome, man. Well, look, I've got one quick final question for you. Okay, uh, What is the, outside of riding, anything that is a professional endeavour, what is your high-flow activity? What brings you the most flow outside of anything you do for a profession? Running. Running, nice. Love it. There you go, folks. Get yourself into some running.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've been been teaching myself. So I, like you, Pricey, I'm a bit of a simpleton in that, you know, my my life has been chasing a ball around, you know, a field or a court or something. And I had always thought I can't do long distance running. Um, And (laughs) then I started to do it, you know, I kinda of, you know, average out eight eight K or something like that most you know, three or four times a week, four or five times a week. But more recently what I've been trying to teach myself to do is run without a destination. And so that's my big challenge now that I've set myself and I just run based on feel. And so this is a big change for someone that grew up playing Aussie rules where there's, you know, two hours and the ball is there and you just go and get it and you, know, you have a defined destination. Yeah,
2: so there's just always being a
1: goal. Exactly, just being able to set off in a, in a direction and then go, how am I feeling? Do I keep going? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Do I explore somewhere? Do I go on a trail? Do I stay on the road? That's what I'm challenging myself with at the moment.
0: Cool. I love that. What a great thing. That, you know, just on that like that sort of deploying that. So sort of going, I'll go left today or right. And exploring different, play- you know, novelty is a huge flow trigger as well. So deploying flow trigger, you got your exercise, you got things. So it's not that surprising that it, uh, it triggers flow for you and it's, and it's and you experience that. So, so that's um, super awesome. Well, mate, I really appreciate your time. Um, you've given us some absolute gold in this conversation It's been awesome. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the new book coming out. Continue following your work and uh, look forward to hearing more. And hopefully, we'll have you back on the Flowcast at some time in the future.
1: Yeah, mate, I'd love to. And when I get my pod back up and going, once I finish this book, we'll do the
0: the reverse fixture as well. I'd love to. All right, mate. Well, Cody Royal, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Price. Thank you for dialing into the Flowcast. I hope you took away some valuable insights to make your challenges and journey a little more epic. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help you find more flow and upskill your vision and mindset, check out our flow programs at www.inspiredpeakperformance.com. Thanks again for sharing your valuable time with us and please feel free to share and subscribe to the Flowcast. Until next time, get out there, find your flow and create your own inspired peak performances daily.